Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi there! We have a very special episode of Books with Hooks today. If you follow us on social media, then you know that the novel The Ballerinas was the inaugural selection for the Books with Hooks book club, the official book club of our podcast. Well, with us today, joining my colleague Carly Waters and me, is the author of that novel, Rachel Kapelkdale, and her literary agent, Sarah Fair. Carly, Rachel, and Sarah are each going to critique a submission from one of our lovely listeners. And I'll be running the show. That's right. Today, I am playing the role of Bianca because she deserves a day off. And so, as Bianca would say, let's dive right in. Carly, would you read us the first query letter? All right, here we go. 
I am going to add a little content warning today. So my content warning for the listeners is there is sexual assault mentioned in this one. So skip ahead to the next one if you don't want to listen to that content. So there we go. Dear Carly, Sarah, Rachel, and Cece, as a huge fan of the ballerinas, I'm thrilled to learn that you will be appearing together on the Books with Hooks segment of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. I'm hopeful my novel, The Opposite of Eve, 85,000 Words Book Club Fiction, will pique your interest. With an off-kilter protagonist and themes of assault and revenge, The Opposite of Eve will appeal to fans of Promising Young Woman, My Dark Vanessa, and Animal. After being raped and impregnated on prom night, Eve Robbins renounced her Ivy League scholarship and dreams of a post-grad life in Paris in order to give birth and raise her baby near her parents. 18 years later, she's convinced herself she's fine. After all, she manages payroll for a mid-sized real estate firm, cooks duck confit and baklava for her family, and dotes on her academically and athletically gifted son, Ben. Only Eve's sister knows the dark secret of Ben's conception. When her rapist returns to their small Virginia town to become athletic director at Ben's high school, Eve must reckon with the feeling she thought she'd buried for good, including anger at her unpunished assailant and guilt over how she might have prevented the assault. Inspired by her daring older sister, Eve plots revenge on her rapist, hoping to make him suffer and keep him from knowing his son. But when Eve's attempts at retribution go awry, Ben learns about his mother's lies. He moves out unless she agrees to seek counseling, but she's not ready to forgive her assailant. Meanwhile, her rapist still free, Eve discovers she might not be his only victim. Torn between her love for her son and her desire to retreat to her safe, closed-off world, Eve faces an impossible choice. Confront her trauma, learn to trust herself, or risk losing her son for good. I was inspired to write this book due to my experience with sexual assault and my frustration that almost all sexual assailants go free. I hold an honors degree from Yale and an MBA from UCLA. My short fiction has been nominated for Best Microfictions, Best Small Fictions, and Pushcart Prize, and has been published in a variety of literary magazines. Details at website redacted. After living in California and Italy, I reside in Richmond, Virginia. When not writing, I'm often training for a marathon, cajoling my three children to piano practice, or letting my rescue dog chase the squirrels that stalk our bird feeders. Thank you for your consideration. All best. Name redacted. Wonderful. And Carly, what were your thoughts on that query letter? Okay. So I definitely had a stomach drop moment in the middle there. I think that this is very heavy. I think the comps are accurate. The word count is right on point. Everything about the structure of this works really well, but obviously it's a big kind of kick in the gut kind of premise. I think that we're missing another comp personally. I think we're missing, I mean, not that the comps are wrong or anything like that, but potentially another comp you kind of might want to keep on the back burner is Best Kind of People by Zoe Whittle. I think that would probably be a good comp because that's a small town. There's a sexual assault kind of case in the background looming. It just reminds me a little bit of this like small town sexual assailant thing. So that could be a comp you might want to keep in the background. But I do think your comps are definitely on point. Overall, the structure is really good. I don't really have anything incredible to kind of say about reworking this. I think it's great. And I think it's doing its job. And for the right agent that's looking for a project like this, I feel like you checked all the boxes. Did you want more details on the revenge she's plotting? Not particularly. I'll talk a little bit more about like how the query letter does its job in the sample pages. But what I always say about query letters is the job of the query letter is to hook the agent, right? And that's its only job. And so I feel like the query letter itself did the job it needs to do. Because if there's an agent looking for something like this, like it, it will check all the boxes for that particular agent. So I don't think I need to know about that. I think there's kind of enough on the table here that will hook somebody. Amazing. Okay. And can you give us a sense of what happens in those um, opening pages? Absolutely. So we have a timestamp. I won't sing the timestamp jingle, but if anybody that knows the timestamp jingle, you can sing it. So we start with our 
timestamp, August 2017. I'll read our first line and then I'll kind of summarize and then I'll get it to my notes. So the first line, kind of based on what we know from the query letter, I had never been one to seek revenge until the sunny August day when my rapist returned to Henrysville and I decided to call Yvette. I think that's a great first line. Again, it kind of covers exactly what we know the query letter to be and the premise itself. So we set off knowing all that information. So there's some moving trucks parked in the neighborhood. She's walking around our main character. She's like seeing these, these trucks. And so she sees a last name Lynch on the boxes and her mom's saying like, did you hear Travis moved back into town? And then her stomach drops because the mom says, you're Travis, knowing that this is the Travis that assaulted her. We get lots of detail about the specifics that it is Travis who raped her. You know, it's very clear. All of that is extremely laid out. And we learn that Travis has been hired as the athletic director in the high school. Again, we know this from the query letter. And yeah, that's most of it. At the end, we do get a kind of a little dream sequence, which is that night, every time I close my eyes, I sense Travis behind me. We get this moment of what's happening in the dreams. And that's mostly it. Oh, and then she calls her sister and her sister and her kind of talk about what's going on. There's a line that says, I thought for sure I'd never hear you again. Is everything okay? So, you know, obviously they're a bit estranged. And then she says, you remember Travis? How could I forget? And then her sister is the one that plants the seed for revenge. So I feel like these five five pages is kind of a summary of the query letter. So you guys can kind of know those are kind of a, a replicate of each other. Amazing. And what did you think about the pages themselves? Yeah. Okay. So everybody knows there's a content warning on this one. So we're going to use the R word a lot here. Okay. I don't mind using the word rape because it is an accurate word to clinically and legally explain what had happened to her. So I think there's also a lot of politics around using this word specifically because obviously, as I said, it is the accurate word. But the more we use it, sometimes the less powerful it becomes. But then I also feel like that's a bad thing to say because we should be able to use the word that accurately describes what happened to her. So I felt like unsettled probably in a good way, but I'm not sure if it was a bad way because we use the word rape a lot. Like I didn't count. I probably should have and could have, but we use it a lot. And so I'm not sure if it kind of mutes it in the sense that the word itself becomes less powerful or yeah, is that the point that we're trying to kind of reduce its power by using it more? So that's, I'm not, again, not really sure what maybe the author's intentions with that were, but it's obviously a very conscious decision to say like from the get-go, like this is what we're talking about. Overall, I think you also have to remember that this is pitched as book club fiction. So our audience is book clubs. We assume majority of book clubs are women, not all of them, right? And so this is going to be a heavily loaded conversation for book clubs. I don't know if it might be too heavy for some book clubs at the beginning, if you want to kind of like bring the reader into it. And then we kind of using more strong language. Like, I I don't know. I think I'm just really torn about how we're tackling that subject, if that makes sense. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I think I'm just conflicted about whether we need to kind of say the word rape so many times in five pages of an opening of a novel. That's basically it. The other thing I had a note of was there's a couple comments about like the word gut. Um, So gut punch. And there was another thing about like spoiled meat. I would just like make sure we're not talking about our gut too much in the first couple pages just because we're repeating it, right? So find something else to talk about instead of gut, we talk about our head or whatever, right? Just not repeating that sort of thing. The other thing is because these opening pages are essentially a repetition of the premise itself, I find that really good because we're not kind of like wasting our time getting to the inciting incident. 
But the reader knows all of this, presumably at this point, if they did read the jacket copy or the back cover copy. So I think it's good, but I think I wouldn't do that dream scene. Like I would just keep moving forward to the plot because we know what Travis did. So I just don't think we need to kind of do the little dream sequence. And just coming back to why I'm talking about (laughs) the repetition of rape so much. I'm not trying to dwell on this for the sake of it being rape itself. I would say this about any traumatic events that we're kind of repeating and repeating and repeating. So I just want to make that clear that I'm not trying to like dwell on that specifically. Any traumatic event in a novel that we're like repeating and repeating and reading the first five pages just could be heavy. So it's just something to think about. But I really like that kind of sister drama where it's like the sister's like, ah, I'm not sure if I would ever hear from you again. And then they talked awesome tension there. And I really like how dialogue heavy the sample is. I'm a big fan of really dialogue heavy openers, especially when they're kind of grounded with a lot of context as well. So I think we this covered a lot, <laughs> you know, between the query, the opening pages, we have a really good sense of what's happening here. And we know exactly you know, what we're getting set up for. So I don't know a lot about what's to come because we've kind of covered everything from the query letter to the pages. But as I said, I think for the right agent, I think this will check a lot of boxes. Bravo to the author, because in five pages, we got so much, right? Like there has to be a moment where we all just applaud what this person did in terms of covering the number of things that she covered. I do think that when it comes to talking about anything that's super traumatic, I feel torn because as a human, I'm like, yes, let's name it. Let's be direct about it. Let's claim that experience because it's so powerful to do that. But as a storyteller, your job is to manipulate. And so it's not always the best idea to just come out and say something so directly. And so there's that really complicated situation, right, that we're in as as humans and as storytellers or story lovers. Rachel, Sarah, would you like to add anything to Carly's feedback? Totally optional. Yeah, if I can piggyback off of what you're saying there, Cece and uh, Carly. I wonder if the issue around language, particularly the word rape and rapist, in those first five pages isn't actually a craft issue. And here's my thoughts on that, is that the author here does set up a lot of relationships very well in these pages, but she also puts in a ton of plot, as you've both pointed out. For me, this is as much as I really liked this sample. I think this is reading so condensed that I'm worried about the pacing of the book as a whole. And so I start to think this this is almost more like short story pacing. And this writer has won a lot of awards for short stories and things like that. They clearly work across both mediums. And so I'm wondering if it's not so much that it's the repetition of the word, but just in how fast all of this information is coming and being processed. And for that, because with everything that happens in these five pages, this for me could be 50 pages. I tend to be guilty of overwriting though, rather than doing things too quickly. I can do both, but (laughs) everybody can. But you know, with that said, while we have the relationship set up, I'd almost love to see more about the character, the narrator here, and the way that she sees the world before we throw her in the first page right into this, because we see her reacting, right? We see her reacting in both of these cases. And I want to see her acting even just a little bit on her own and the kind of decisions that she makes. So I know what kind of character is being put in this situation. Because right now the five pages are all about the situation, which is why the word rape and rapists are used so much. So I think focusing just just a little bit more, because it is very artful the way that the author works in so much plot here. But I think that would be my recommendation is to give the character a little more space to breathe. Amazing. Thank you for that great assessment. 
Sarah, anything you want to add? Sure. I think that's a great point that Rachel just brought up. I think for me too, sort of spacing out some of these more intense elements, the more we get to understand a character and know that character, the more we can sort of feel these experiences with them. When we're just meeting a character, it's harder for us to really understand why certain things would affect them certain ways or why they would interpret certain actions in certain ways. I think it's a great idea to space this out and really pull back and let us get to know who this character is, where they are in their life. And from there, develop these deeper elements. And that way it'll be a larger emotional payoff. And I think it will feel less brash up front with all of that information being piled on in those first few pages. I love that. I think one thing to keep in mind to the writer who's listening to us is that we love what you're doing. We're wondering whether you could pace yourself a little bit more, which is not a bad thing. It just means we want more parceled out in a different way. So that's amazing. Thank you. Rachel, would you read us the second query letter? Absolutely. Let's see. Dear Cece, Rachel, Carly, and Sarah, I'm a huge fan of the Books with Hooks segment on the long acronym podcast um, and equally excited for the book club launch of the ballerinas, which I devoured in one, albeit long, sitting. I'm pleased to submit The Executioner, 80,000 Words, a debut historical novel about the life of the real executioner of Paris during the French Revolution. Charles-Henri Sanson, who guillotined over 3,000 souls, is the unwilling yet uniquely central figure in this tumultuous and pivotal fight for democracy, one that still resonates today. Charles-Henri's morality is challenged by the brutality of his job, akin to Heather Morris as the tattooist of Auschwitz, and the delicate belief system he manufactures to survive is reminiscent of The German Heiress by Annika Scott. Content warning, the novel includes scenes of blood, torture, and decapitation. Special fur baby call out for Cece, a sheep is guillotined in this novel. It's 1757, and 16-year-old commoner Charles-Henri wants to be noble, but it's his duty to inherit the family trait of executioner and the terrible social stigma that comes with it. He impersonates a nobleman, tricking the stunning and ambitious Jean de Vaubernier into thinking he is a courtier. Courtier. <laughs> when his father suffers a stroke, Charles-Henri must step in to become the executioner sooner than expected, or else doom his family to a life of squalor. After botching his first major execution and losing Jean after his true identity is exposed, he must truly embrace his family legacy or else risk their survival. Thirty years later, Charles-Henri has built a family and a life of his own as the executioner, but revolution is in the air. When the Bastille falls in 1789, everything he holds dear begins to crumble. His eldest son, Henri, an ardent revolutionary, rebels against God, King, and Charles-Henri's entire way of life, leading to a cataclysmic estrangement. That's a tongue twister. Meanwhile, Charles-Henri's creditors threaten his survival, and his wife, Marianne, grows increasingly distant, believing he's having an affair with a now-exiled Jean. More alone than ever, Charles-Henri seeks to redeem himself by inventing a more humane execution device, la guillotine. He is horrified as his invention becomes a killing machine, leveraged by a revolutionary government fighting for control. When the revolution mutates into the reign of terror and the lines between freedom and tyranny, innocence and guilt blur, Charles-Henri juggles the ever-morphing political power dynamics of revolutionary France. One wrong word, one defiant act, and he risks being beheaded himself. Soon, his loved ones appear on the scaffold, forcing Charles-Henri to contend with his own complicity in the bloodshed. As the violence of the terror explodes to new heights, Charles-Henri must face his own role in the revolution in order to save his family and his soul. I'm the French-American daughter of a high school French history teacher mom and nonfiction history author dad, and often traveled to Paris where I did extensive research for this novel. 
I hold a BA in French and English Literature from Vassar College and an MSc in Psychology from University College London. My travel narrative publications can be found on my website at www.nolasolomon.com. When not writing or at my advertising day job, I mentor at Girls Right Now and enjoy jogging with my fiancé along the Hoboken waterfront as an excuse to gaze at the gorgeous Manhattan skyline. I'm currently hard at work on my next novel. Thank you in advance for your feedback on my query and the first five pages of my manuscript enclosed below. Best, Nola Solomon. Wonderful, Rachel. Thank you for that. I know you're not an agent, but you are an author. And so you've had to write query letters and you're also a reader. And so you read the back of books, right? And so what are your thoughts on this query letter, both from a storyteller and from a reader's perspective? Definitely. Well, there's so much that I like here and I think is working. What I really like is the way that the author is setting up different kinds of tensions within the novel. So she's talking a lot about the tensions in society and the way that Charles-Henri is set up against them, the tensions within the family, the way that these things come to the fore, these kind of push and pull forces. So that has me intrigued. I have to say as well, I know this is not something that you can really critique, but I just love this premise. I saw this and it was like, Cece got it exactly right giving me this. This is so very much my thing. I love this. And I think that there is a promise of kind of deep research in the novel. This person seems to have a real authority in the subject matter and in knowing what they're writing about. There are also some really nice turns of phrase here, particularly I liked the, the lines between freedom and tyranny, innocence and guilt. I like that pairing. I think for me, and I think that I really noticed this as I was reading this out loud too, is with historical fiction, I think it's really a fine line to walk between including a ton of details and making it sound like a biography. Because there's, you know, we want to know why this is a novel and why it's not a biography or creative nonfiction telling us about the person's whole life. So what I, and I think three paragraphs, we don't need three paragraphs here. It's so hard. When I sat down to pitch the ballerinas, I think I had two pages of summary before I was going, wait, she didn't ask for a synopsis. She asked for you know, a query letter. So I tried to get it down to one paragraph and I challenged myself to do three sentences. I'm not sure it worked out this way, but for kind of a narrative arc way to go, this is the starting situation and you know what's challenging the narrator status quo or what they want and what conflicts emerge and what are the results being a little bit cagey about that last one. So I actually sat down and tried to did a little pitch myself on this one. But then I have to say, I liked this. I liked this premise just so much. That I ended up looking at the author's website because I was interested in reading more of her writing. And she actually has a different summary of the book there in one sentence. Could I read that to you guys? I don't know if that's... Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> yes, do it. Okay, great. So she wrote, The Executioner is popular fiction for all those who enjoy a story of survival and moral conflict amidst epoch-changing chaos. When a commoner is called upon to fulfill his duty in the most unfathomable of situations while struggling to remain alive himself. And that for me has a lot of the elements that really work as a pitch. It's a little more abstract maybe than I would use in a pitch. If you included the themes, I would do it at the end after the plot stuff rather than to introduce them. But, you know, I really liked this. You know, he has to fulfill his duty in this unfathomable situation. Okay, great. Like that's, that for me is the crux of this. And that's like the, the real meat. And everything else, you know, those relationships, the problems with his father, with his wife, with his son, those are so important in the book. 
And if your agent, for example, or editors that the agent is pitching to ask you for a synopsis, that's the kind of thing that you would include in that. But at this point, I think you want to really show that you've thought about this, the story as a narrative rather than, and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. So that would be my main feedback here. I was going to say as well with these comps, I know of both of the books, I haven't read them and they seem relevant to me, but I point out they're both World War II comps and this is not a World War II book. And if you're pitching an agent who is focusing on historical fiction, that might be a little bit of cognitive dissonance. There's also another great comp I was thinking of, which is Pure by Andrew Miller, which is about an engineer in pre-revolutionary Paris who needs to figure out what to do with all of the bodies in the cemeteries of Paris that are overflowing and being really disgusting. So that is, again, for me as a reader, not, you know, I don't have agenting experience. I read that book when I was in the UK, as this author actually was too. We studied at the same university. So, you know, that's something that would be a better comp for probably, you know, a British agent. But that's one that came to me off the top of my head. Wonderful. And going back to what you said, Rachel, about the query letter you had to write for the ballerinas, I just want to tell our listeners that if you stick around for the interview portion of this episode, you will get to hear the pitch that Rachel wrote and that obviously connected her with Sarah, right? Like her agent. So, so stick around and you'll get to hear that. Carly, Sarah, anything you want to add about the query letter? One thing I would like to add, when I'm reading a query letter that has such deep historical elements, for me, the research part of it is really important. And I know the author does briefly mention that, but I would probably even within the query letter want to know a little bit more about how the research was done, because I think that gives me a better sense of how intensive it will be within the material itself. So that's something I would be curious to hear in more detail. Interesting. And Carly? My usual thing is always it's too long. <laughs> and I think that's just the consequence of historical, right? You have to world build just like anything else. And so I think we're all kind of getting at the same point. If we could just trim a little bit of the synopsis stuff out, really get at that hook, which I think we've been able to nail down a little bit further, especially Rachel doing that extra research on the website. Yeah, I think if we just like tighten it up a little bit, it would be perfect. But I think it's really strong and really interesting. Plus, we got to hear Rachel's beautiful pronunciation of all those French words. I mean, we just go <laughs> above and beyond here at the shit no one tells you about writing. Um, I feel like Rachel deserves an applause. So if you're listening to this episode, please do clap your hands. Okay, so Rachel, can you give us a sense of what happens in those opening pages? Absolutely. So Charles-Henri is with the lovely Jean. He is, they have just come from an afternoon of like sexy time together and they are going to a cafe and it's a fancy cafe. He is dressed as a nobleman, although he is not. He is a 16-year-old executioner at this point, but Jean doesn't know that and the people in the cafe don't know that. So, you know, they're entering, they're being seated, and then he's confronted with this menu in script that's so fancy he can barely read it. it. Takes him, you know, a lot of time to work out. And then Jean begins to ask him, you know, when he's going to return to court and all of this. And we realize the extent to which their relationship has been founded on deception. It's a really exciting first few pages here in that the author really works in so much in terms of background, in terms of the historical moment, in terms of the world, while also moving the plot forward here. I really like the device of Charlene Reed struggling to decipher the menu as kind of an externalization of his struggles to, you know, fit into this world that he, you know, he has so longed to be a part of, but is not. 
And the tensions between that are between what he is and what he wants to be are internally and externally visible just from the first sentence. Charles Henri grazed his hand against Jean's arm as he guided her off the street and into the Cafe du Foy, as if her pearly skin could erase the memory of the rope and the dead man dangling from it. We already have this tension there between the pearly skin, this wonderful, luxurious environment that he wants to be a part of, and the rope with the dead man at the end of it, which is his actual life. So there's just wonderful writing happening here. And again, there's a great blending in of historical details and atmosphere. I'd say, for me, this is moving along at kind of the steadiest clip, pacing-wise, on the first and the last page. Pages two to four, I think we could plunge back into the scene at the restaurant a little bit more. Just like the last author, I think this author could withhold some of the information, some of the details, some of the backstory in particular for later, because it's not a short story. There's room to breathe here. And I think readers can get really lost in particularly backstory about where he got his clothes and this and that, all of which is fascinating. But leaving those questions unanswered also creates moments of tension for the reader, which are going, well, wait, he's not a nobleman, but if only noblemen can wear these clothes, then how did he get them? What's going on? You know, and I think we don't have to answer all those questions right away. So, you know, I think being really deliberate about not answering some of those questions would help this writer drive readers forward even more. And that's something that, as I said, I think this is already really skillfully done. The other thing I'd recommend here is just doing a scan with Grammarly or reading this out loud. For the author, there are a few misplaced commas and a few misplaced hyphens, particularly the Charles-Henri, I believe, has a hyphen between it, which if you have a Francophile agent, that might bug them or editor. But I think on a more less flippant, more general note, I think it can affect readability a little bit. You notice there are a few moments where I paused and tried to catch myself. And in some of those cases, it's because there's an extra comma or there isn't a comma where grammatically there should be one. I started using Grammarly for day job writing. I do a lot of writing for standardized tests, actually, and various other things. And one of the workplaces that I write for asked us to use this. And at first I was rolling my eyes going, oh, well, you know, I, I know how to do this and that. And well, I wouldn't necessarily use the style recommendations in my own fiction because I often use fragments and I mean to use fragments or, you know, I use a comma splice and I mean to use a comma splice because it's about pacing and the way I want things to sound on the page. I think those choices should be deliberate. And so, you know, there are a few places here that I wondered where the natural way that I want to read this out loud as a reader is not how it's punctuated. So I would tell the writer to read it out loud, or if they're still having trouble hearing that, to use a program like Grammarly. I don't get paid by them. Should be, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. Thank you so much. I'm adding that to the next pitch deck list of people we need to reach out to. (laughs) Yes, Yes, let's do it. (laughs) I want to go back to what Rachel said about withholding and revealing, because that is at the heart of writing tension. It's also at the heart of storytelling. Storytelling is seduction. It is the art of keeping someone satisfied while also keeping them wanting more. And so we do find this is a common thread whenever we critique query letters here and pages. Be intentional about what you're withholding and when, especially in that opening scene, because it's so important. 
And to all our Kofi subscribers, you will be able to see exactly what Rachel is talking about when she says from page two to four. So head over to the pages that you have access to and that the critique will be elevated. Amazing. So Rachel, thank you so much for that thorough analysis. And Sarah, could you please read us the final query letter? Yes. All right. Dear Rachel, Sarah, Carly, and Cece, I am thrilled to submit this query slash opening pages for consideration for your special Books with Hooks episode. In line with your podcast submission checklist, my book falls under the category of literary slash book club fiction. Permission granted to share any critique with your supporters and listeners. Take the premise of the inheritance games crossed with a style that will appeal to fans of The Nest, and you have my 70,000-word dual POV upmarket novel, The Bequest, wherein two strangers are brought together through an unorthodox condition in the will of a manipulative man. But as we soon find out, the unwitting strangers are connected through blood. Destitute after being conned by a recent beau, Nadine Bishop learns she's inherited a derelict mansion belonging to her first lover under the condition she's allowed his ne'er-do-well son Remington to remain on the property. There are conditions, however. Should Remington become employed and 90 days sober within the first six months after his father's death, which coincides with his 30th birthday, Nadine will be left with nothing. Nadine reluctantly moves into the mansion after learning that Remington is the result of an ovum she sold decades earlier. After realizing her erstwhile lover's long-ago interest in her was merely an act of due diligence, she weighs the ethics of the arrangement, but her dire circumstances compel her to move forward. Meanwhile, Remington has no intention of allowing his inheritance to be scooped up by his late father's mistress, nor does he intend to succumb to the conditions of the bequest. When legal maneuvers fail, he turns to Caroline, a cartel-adjacent con artist from the past, along with a disgraced former high school teacher, Ed. With their help, he intends to thwart his father's meddling and reclaim his birthright. When a freak winter storm forces the unlikely foursome together and Caroline's felonious ex-husband further complicates their disparate agendas, Nadine and Remington must come together and in so doing forge an unlikely unified front. My interest in building a story around the nuanced ethics of IVF donor relationships was spurred by my daughter's and her wife's recent experience having a child through that process, specifically that fine line between what you can know about a donor versus what you want to know. My short pieces have appeared in AARP, The Rumpus, The Southampton Review, Mississippi Review, various anthologies and other literary journals. And my unagented novel, Thoughtland, was a Powell's pick of the month and garnered blurbs from award-winning writers like Rob Hart, Linda Yukovich. My way novels include The Moment of Four, The Empress Chronicles, and The Keepsake. I hold an MFA from Antioch, Los Angeles and work as a freelance development editor, a book coach from my home in Portland, Oregon. And I'm a longtime coordinator of a writing workshop that includes Portland superstar writers, Chuck Balanick, Cheryl Strayed, Lydia Yukovich, and Chelsea Kane. I appreciate your time and would be thrilled to share the story with you opening five pages below. Amazing, Sarah. Thank you so much for that. What were your thoughts on the query letter? Yes, I think as Carly said, as us agents think, I do think it's a little long. My sort of ideal structure in a query letter, I love a really strong opening couple sentences. This is my book. This is the genre. Maybe here are the comps. One really good paragraph of plot. And then you kind of wrap it up at the end. Hit me again. Give me one sentence. It's going to make me like die to read the book. And then also some more thematic elements. So here, I think she probably feels the need because there are sort of dual POVs to really talk to us about both characters. And I do understand that. Some of the basic notes that really work for me as an agent, I'm always, I love to see a word count. I love to see comp titles. One thing I would say here about the comp titles, 
She says, appeals to fans of The Nest. And I think that maybe that comp's not really serving her here because I think tonally, this book is very different than The Nest. So when I, as an agency of The Nest, I'm thinking, ooh, like juicy family drama. They're kind of these like petty, wealthy people. But here it's like a much grittier sort of tone. You know, we have like the cartel and felons. And so for me, that's kind of a miss. I would try and find a comp that maybe has some more of those kind of elements because I think that can be a little, when you go in as an agent expecting one thing and you get something else, like it's distracting for the wrong reasons. And I do think, you know, I think she's really trying to write in an elevated style, but it comes off a little clunky at some time. So, I mean, as you can see, like there were sometimes there was kind of stumbling over how some of the words are placed together. So, I mean, Rachel said this earlier, I always tell people to read things out loud to themselves and make sure because it can look great on the page, but until you hear it yourself, you can't really hear where you're kind of like, oh, maybe that sentence is a little awkwardly worded. It can be a little clunky. So I always recommend that to people as well. I think her bio is really well done. I'd love one little line about like, personally, why you're interested in this story. I love to hear about people's day jobs. People don't often include that in their query letters, but I think it's interesting. Like if you work in marketing and you're reading, you know, uh, ad copy all day. Well, you're working with letters and you're editing things like that's interesting to me. So I always like to hear those little tidbits as well. Yeah. I think those are sort of my main notes about the query letter itself. I love that you essentially gave a shout out to our favorite structure, which is hook, book, cook. Carly talks about it all the time. Carly, I feel like we might need a song like you did with the time <laughs> Okay, Are I need some need time to come up with some more songs. <laughs> yes, we need more songs. It's, it's That's your job now. I'll work on it. <laughs> to build on the reading out loud advice, which was which is absolutely great advice, right? Like, yes, do that. And also have someone read it out loud to you. Someone who did not write this. Because our brains auto-correct things all the time when we have written those words, right? So have a friend, a trusted friend, your partner, I don't know, whoever you trust, read this out loud to you. If that's not an option for you, you're just like, I can't ask someone to do that. Record yourself reading it out loud and then listen to the recording later. I promise you it will help so much. Any thoughts on that query letter, Carly and Rachel? I just had kind of one, I guess, overarching note, which is some of the wording felt like, I think what Sarah was getting at was like the kind of the clunkiness or awkwardness. Like some of it felt very dated. Like I highlighted some words like bow, like never do well, erstwhile, maneuver, birthright. I don't know. Just some of it felt like almost felt a little historical to me. I don't know. I couldn't figure out if this was modern day or not, just based on some of that language that just felt a little bit more, I don't know, but historical or dated or whatever you want to call it. I was just kind of, I just think I wanted to know what time period we were in, to be honest, just to kind of confirm my suspicions or just let me know. It's an excellent point. There was an old fashioned feel here. I hadn't picked up on the why, but I did pick up on the feeling. But do you know those, sorry to, to jump in here, but the pages themselves are very voicey. We will get into that later, but in, in a way that I really loved. And it's this same kind of voice. It's almost like a 40s, his girl Friday, that's before the 40s, but it's like that kind of sassy, hey kid, what you doing type voice. It does go along with that, but I think it's to the author's benefit to be aware of that and to clean that up a little bit out of the letter or to just be aware of what it does and say, this is a contemporary you know, novel, you know, exactly. a novel that, set that in contemporary times. To me. Yes, exactly. And shout out to Sarah Miller, one of our loyal listeners who always talks about how sassy we are at the podcast. Um, <laughs> okay, so Sarah, could you give us a sense of what's happening in those opening pages? Sure. So in these opening pages, we meet Nadine, who is going to be one of our two points of view. It's a close third on her. But as Rachel mentioned, it is very voicey. So I think 
from the beginning, we kind of get a sense of who she is. I, get, I think sassy is an apt word. One thing, a specific comment I want to, I think this is a good note here, but I think it's something I see a lot. And I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time, but it is really important to think five pages, 10 pages, like that's all I'm going to get with this agent or even, you know, with editors, like I, before I got on into submission and something, I will reread the first 50 pages of a manuscript a lot of times. And it's so important. So I think here she opens it with a description of weather, which for me is an immediate no, most times. And I think oftentimes we can just cut this first paragraph and go right into the second one. So I'll just read a little bit of how she does some of this weather. This is just the first paragraph. Nadine's lower back radiated ache. Outside the pane of one of her functional apartment window, wind whirled up the few December leaves, stalwarts, those stragglers, never touched by the hue of nature's autumnal grace. The once verdant maple foliage went directly to mud brown, crisping at the edges as though kiln dried. The leaves danced until finding purchase in a puddle where they slowly decomposed. So if you think like as that's the first thing you're showing me, right, as a writer. And but the next paragraph, you're getting right into, you know, we're meeting this character on Christmas Day and she's dragging a Christmas tree. So the next paragraph, the tree she dragged home the night before lay on the threshold between her living area and her kitchen. And in some ways, I would rather just go there. Let's just start there. And because word description really works in fiction for me as when you're either breaking up intensity or you're building these kind of sensual moments of sound and taste and smell. And if I don't even know where I am or who I'm with yet, like you're kind of wasting those descriptions on me. You definitely have descriptive language, but use it at the right times, I think. And so here, when I'm just getting to know my character, like I want to know who she is and what she's doing. So I think you can just jump right into a lot of that. And I think we'll talk about with Rachel and her book, I think her prologue is so compelling, but she really, it's like you're immediately pulled in. You're like, oh, what is this? And weather or, I mean, you would be surprised how many, I'm sure both of you can speak to how many things you get that start with weather. And I just don't think we need that as much. It is very voicey. So I do think we get a sense right away of who Nadine is. We are getting some of that classic, you know, show don't tell kind of things. I always, I always like to point out there's a scene where she, she feels this, she thinks this, you know, we're being told a lot of her emotions. And anytime you use a word like Nadine felt, Nadine saw, I always like to think, can we, first of all, do we need that? Like here it's, you know, it's talking about a tear in her eye and, and describing her sneezing. And I think really you can tell your reader these things in a different way. So I always, the show versus tell is really important to me. And again, just kind of going back to what I was saying about the nest and the tone. Here we have her saying like, felonist fuckwad Dylan. Like, okay, that is very, I understand who that is, but like, that's not the nest to me. Do you know, you know what I mean? I, so just make sure like it, have this really great, gritty, sassy woman, but give me that in the comps and let me know what that is up front. So I know what I'm getting into here, but she does a good job of setting up within the first five pages. We do see someone coming to the door with what we know will be the will where she'll find out about these kind of wild circumstances of how she's going to inherit this mansion. So I think we do get there really quickly, which I do like as well. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that what Sarah's saying, I mean, to me is makes a lot of sense in terms of we get a lot of submissions, agents get tons of query letters and so many first pages start with weather. And I get why, like I empathize, I understand because we are told as writers, you have to um, include sensorial details. You have to include set the mood. Is it sunny? Is it stormy? Is it raining? Like, what is it? However, it might not be best to start with that, right? Like you can keep those descriptions and use them later in your story. Keep a Word document of all the stuff you're cutting because you might need it later. And if you are an overwriter, if you're someone who is 
often guilty of, and you will know this based on what your beta readers tell you, but if you're someone who's um, guilty of, I don't know, describing the setting way too much, like you're giving me too many visuals on the living room, I don't need to know all the details about the interior design of the living room, or someone who's guilty of writing too much about the weather, one thing you might want to do is delete your first paragraph, like just delete the whole thing and then start with your second paragraph. Oftentimes, that's what Sarah suggested right here. Oftentimes that helps when it comes to picking the right place to start. We talk a lot about the importance of figuring out the right place to start. And that's not necessarily reworking the whole scene. Sometimes that's like deleting a paragraph or two. So something to keep in mind. Carly, Rachel, anything that you want to add to Sarah's brilliant analysis? So I'd love to dive in here myself as a writer who has been very resistant to not beginning with the weather before in earlier projects. Wait, and was Sarah I would, the one who convinced you not no. to start with the weather? <laughs> no, actually, in the interview, we we, uh, we actually talked about the transformation of that first sentence. So I knew uh, by then <laughs> not to pitch that way. But I think about it this way. In college, this is going to date me a little bit, but my best friend, Jess, would always say, you know, I'd say, well, should what about Capri pants? Should I wear Capri pants? She'd say, look, if you're somebody who looks good in Capri pants, you look better in anything else. So I want to point out that this writer is writing weather in a really nice way. There's some lovely language here. And my guess is that she wants to show that off right away. And that's why she put it in here. Kiln dried, especially, was really nice. I really liked that. But I think a story looks better in anything else. And here's why. It's because the weather is, I always thought, well, what if the weather, you know, I'm, I'm including weather, but my weather shows what my characters like. It shows how they think and how they see the world. But in the first paragraph, we don't know anything. It's like somebody coming up to you at a party and being like, I am having the worst day and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, I don't know you. Why are you, why do I care what's going, you know, I mean, I guess basic human empathy, but like go, what, hearing what's going on inside your head is not interesting unless you know that person, you know? Well, because you and need the context. Absolutely. It's, yes. not, it's not about not having empathy. It's because you need the context or else it's like, I don't know what that means to you in your life specifically. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd say, you know, I really want to say to this writer, I mean, yeah, this writing is really exceptional. I just don't think it belongs here. Take off those capri pants. Who is surprised that the person who is now speaking to us from Paris, right, like the fashion capital of the world, is talking about capri pants, right? Like, I love this. Describing the weather is like wearing capri pants. That's amazing. Carly, did you want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to endorse the start with the second paragraph because it's great. Like the tree she dragged home the night before lay on the threshold between her living area and kitchen. Dots of dried blood decorated the linoleum next to an abandoned steak knife that had failed to saw through the crooked trunk. Like to me, that's so visual. And I, I just feel like that's unforgettable. Another line that I really liked, because obviously money is going to be a big theme. Another line that I really liked was the stupid tree, the stupid overpriced tree. This was the Pacific Northwest after all. Spruces sprang from soil unabated. So why had the crooked tree been $75? Something about fires and climate crises and supply train foibles. Right, all valid, but still $75 when you're flat broke might as well be $750. And to me, that was so well done just to talk about the classism and the money stuff and all of that. I thought I really, really liked that. So I think there's a lot of things that are working here, but just take our advice and chop that first paragraph. Wonderful. I love all this. 
Thank you, Rachel and Sarah, for joining Carly and me on the special episode of Books with Hooks. It was so much fun. Bianca, I don't know if you're listening, but I'm sure that everyone misses you because you were meant to do the whole directing part of this. I am obviously not as good as you are, but I'm glad that we gave you a day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, please stick around because we are going to be interviewing Sarah and Rachel now about the lovely book, The Ballerinas. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be.
This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 5th of April, Carly is hosting an Identifying and Cultivating Your Author Brand webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. On the 13th of April, I will be hosting a Leaning into Specificity webinar between 7 and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a Writing Tension webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To sign up for those, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the Courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the Beta Reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. Sign up for that is open between the 22nd of March and the 5th of April, although I do plan to host them monthly. Hi there. We have two very special guests with us today. First up is Rachel Kapelk-Dale, who is the author of the novels The Ballerinas, which is out now, and The Ingenue, coming to you soon in December 2022. Rachel is also the co-author of Graduates in Wonderland with Jessica Pan. Rachel received a BA from Brown University, an MA from the Université de Paris 7, and a PhD from University College London. She currently lives in Paris. And with Rachel here today is her literary agent, the fabulous Sarah Fair of Greenberger Associates. Originally from Mississippi, Sarah moved to New York in 2010 to pursue a career in publishing. She worked at Trident Media Group for six years, acting as audio agent and foreign rights agent before building her own list. Sarah also has an MA in British and American literature. She represents a range of fiction and nonfiction authors writing for the adult market. Please join me in welcoming Rachel and Sarah. Yay, I'm so pleased you're both here. This is a very special episode for us since The Ballerinas was the inaugural selection for the Books with Hooks book club, which is, of course, the official book club of our podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. I know that most of our listeners have already read your book, but let's be careful not to give them any spoilers in case they haven't. Not everyone who listens to the podcast is a member of the book club, although we hope that one day that won't be true anymore. So Rachel, can you take us back to the day in, I don't even know what year it was, when you first spoke with Sarah? So let's see, we first spoke in, I think it was November 2019. <laughs> I'm getting confused on the years now. Yeah, it was November 2019, and I had just sent out my first round of queries for ballerinas, and Sarah was one of the first uh, five agents that I contacted. Yeah, we spoke for, I think it was a relatively long call, uh, because the chemistry was there really immediately, and uh, there was just so much that I think we had to say to each other about the book, about publishing, about literature in general. Yeah, and I was here in Paris, and she was in New York. As you both still are. So I think that's actually a really interesting thing because one of the questions we get a lot from our listeners is, well, I'm in the UK, but I want to be published in the US or I'm in Australia or I'm in, I don't know, wherever, right? Like, so it doesn't actually matter where you are in the world as long as you click with someone. Do you, do you agree with that, Sarah? 
I agree with that. I think especially now as we've realized we can pretty much do our jobs from anywhere, the location doesn't really make a difference to me personally. I love being in New York. I love being in the community as much as I can in publishing, but I do think you can do this job pretty much anywhere now. Sarah, how was it for you on the other side of this? So you got Rachel's query. Like, do you remember? I know it's been a while. This was pre-pandemic. Like, who even remembers the before times? (laughs) (laughs) It does feel a little bit like a different life, but I do remember it well. And Rachel's had to embarrassingly hear me tell the story a couple of times, but I remember her query very well. I mean, I think as agents, we often talk about, we call it different things, the feeling, the butterflies, the, the tingle, whatever we say. But I definitely, as soon as I read Rachel's pitch, it really sparked something for me. As an agent, I really respond to a lot of plot in a query. I think oftentimes we see queries where it's about a character that goes on a journey. And sometimes I'm like, okay, but what happens? If you have a hundred thousand words, what's going on in there? And Rachel had so much plot and I was immediately so intrigued by the story itself. And also our personal interest, I studied abroad in Paris in college. I was a dancer growing up as well. And so for me, it was immediate like, oh my gosh, yes, this sounds so good. And then once I read it, I read it very quickly. And I also remember, this is what I tell Rachel all the time. I remember after I emailed her to set up the call, the night before we had the call, I just like couldn't sleep because I was thinking about what if someone else got to sell this book besides me. And I just felt sick over it. Like I was, I already was so committed to it. And in preparation for this podcast, I kind of went back and read some of our initial emails and I could just, even myself, I could see how excited I was and how persistent I was. Cause I try and play it cool sometimes, but I could tell with Rachel, I was like, just checking in. I wanted to let you know, still love this book. So I'd love to work with you. So I think like she said, our chemistry was pretty quick and we loved a lot of the same things in books. And I think that's a really great thing to share with a client. And I'll say though, I mean, the, sorry to get you off there. The Sarah's persistence was one of many, many things that I really loved about her right away because she wasn't annoying in any sense of it, but she followed up regularly. And I thought, you know, she's not going to just let a book submission die out there. She's going to be chasing it down. She's going to be, yeah, she's... (laughs) She's very um, persistent, and I really liked that. You know, when I first started agenting, one of the advice that I got from someone who's been agenting for goodness, I don't even know, like decades, is that it was our job as agents to project sexy indifference. These were the words this person used. When talking about books, because this was all like dating, no one wanted you to show that you wanted them. And it's not that I don't see how this advice can be applicable in certain situations, especially like with publishers and stuff. But honestly, with clients, you get something like Sarah just talked about it, right? Like it's that feeling, it's that butterfly, it's that, oh my God, this, this is the one, this is the one for me. And so how on earth are you supposed to not be excited and not be like the most enthusiastic person? So, so I get that. Okay. So I feel like our listeners now are going to be curious because Sarah made a great point about how query letters, the plot paragraph has to have, Hey, guess what? Plot, right? Like not the themes, not the feelings, not the journey, not the interiority. These are all important things for the book, but not for the query letter. So Rachel, would you read us your plot paragraph, the one that you sent to Sarah in 2019, the pitch, essentially the pitch? Absolutely. So here it is. Delphine needs to find out who's watching her. After ruining her best friend's career, Delphine quit her job as a ballerina at the Paris Opera Ballet and has spent the past 13 years 
as a struggling choreographer in St. Petersburg. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to choreograph at the Phantom's Opera House brings 36-year-old Delphine back to Paris and into the arms of an unknown stalker. But as she tries to identify them, a love affair with her decades-long crush takes a dark turn and secrets about the history of her friendships emerge with fatal consequences. The Ballerinas is a story about the privileges, risks, and myths surrounding female visibility and the complex evolution of friendships. Leanne Moriarty meets Black Swan. So it definitely took some changes as we worked on the book together. Uh, How could I not love that query letter? I mean, right? (laughs) There's like, she really nailed the intrigue and the comps are really, really great. I mean, I immediately was like, yes. And with such economy, right? Like the paragraph is so short, which is what you want. You want to give someone just enough to get them hooked, but not too much that you're essentially giving everything away. So, okay, Sarah, can you now tell us like on that call with Rachel and then even working together, right? Like after Rachel said, yes, like what was the editorial process like? I want to hear from both of you, but I'll, I'll let Sarah kick it up. I think we did three rounds back and forth. And so again, no spoilers, because anyone who hasn't read The Ballerinas, I would like for you to read it. But we definitely changed some of the framing device, the stalker character, this sort of Delphine being viewed, that was pretty much gone after the first round. It just didn't seem to really be serving her. And we we really focused more on the relationships. And Rachel has an amazing editor, Sarah Canton, who pushed these things even further. But I think we, um, in those first couple rounds, are really focused on developing the relationships amongst the women and developing Delphine herself. And how was that like for you, Rachel? What was the, were you expecting three rounds? Were you expecting more? Or what was it? Like fewer rounds? What was the situation on your end? I'm not sure I went in with any particular expectations. I mean, Sarah and I had discussed a kind of shared vision for the book. So it was kind of, it was more along the lines of whatever it takes to get us to the best version of this then, you know, I'm going to do two rounds and then, and then it's done, you know, then I'm out. No, it was, it was going to be, I was in it for as long as it took. In terms of the actual edits, I think the going into it, I thought, you know, I need this to be just the grabbiest thing possible. And that kind of stalker framing was something I had added in one of the later drafts on my own. (laughs) I really loved that Sarah immediately saw that as something that could be not lifted out, but certainly reworked in a way to remove that and to build the relationships. I think I was mistrusting my own instincts in terms of are the relationships and the way that they're evolving enough to carry the plot of this book. I I wanted something super, super plotty and thrillery and and grabby. But the more that um, I leaned into the actual dynamics among the women between Delphine and her various uh, lovers, things like that, the kind of unrelated, uh, you know, psychological thriller element of this uh, unknown stalker became relevant to the actual narrative. A question we get all the time from our listeners that they want us to ask authors is, when you were writing your book, did you know the genre? And I'm asking this question to Rachel as the author, but also to Sarah as her agent. Like, did you know the genre when you first got this, when you first read the full, Sarah? And Rachel, did you know it when you were writing it? I'm not sure I know it now. I'm I'm not really... I'm not really concerned with genre in and of itself. I think that's why you have an agent. (laughs) Exactly. Sarah definitely has to be. I have the luxury of kind of uh, working with within the story, I think, without necessarily having to think about that framing as much. 
So I uh, clearly, clearly, no, I, I, I didn't. I was really focused on just character and situation. From the beginning, I knew that I wanted to write something in the vein of Leon Moriarty, upmarket, that kind of space. But at the same time, as I wrote, it turned a lot darker than that. And when St. Martin's marketing department placed the book, they sometimes it's marketed as a thriller. And that's not necessarily how I was thinking of it, but I can certainly see that there are some thrillery elements in there. But for me, the most important thing was to develop the character, to develop the situation, and not necessarily thinking overly much about what the genre was. Now, I think that if this had been a different kind of book, if this had been something speculative, that might have been a lot more important to to meet reader expectations, to meet genre conventions for world building and things like that. But um, I think there's a surprising amount of space within the upmarket category for different kinds of stories. I'll say that I think I had some concerns about calling a book like this a thriller and anyone who's read it could see why that could be a limiting description. Maybe one day we can have a podcast rant about Goodreads, but I feel that sometimes if you're really positioning something as a thriller to an audience, you know, they're really coming to it with these expectations. Sometimes you're going to comment, well, I wasn't thrilled by this. Okay. Well, I think there's a lot going on in Rachel's book. I think that's where comp titles really serve you the best versus putting these really strict definitions of genre. Because even as an individual reader, we come to a definition of genre with different expectations. And so when I'm speaking with someone who doesn't know how to define their genre, I just say, who do you imagine being next to on a shelf or on the same table with? And I think in some ways that's more important to be able to say, because there are these nuances. You know, I don't think anyone would really say Leanne Moriarty is a thriller writer, right? But all of her books have these really compelling, fast-paced elements that have a lot of plot and have readers turning pages. And that's much more interesting to me than using these more narrow definitions. I understand from a marketing and publicity standpoint where we have to get readers to the book somehow, but I hope as readers, especially, you know, for someone like Get There, they'll see she also has beautiful writing on the page. And there are these sort of deep emotional elements that we may not always relate to a quote unquote thriller. Actually, one of our first conversations was when Sarah introduced me to the writing of Megan Abbott, who I actually had not read before. You had never read her before? I had never read her before, but, but she saw that as- similarities in the writing style. Yeah, she yeah, saw that as the immediate see, comp. See, your agent's a genius because- Oh, I know. does. Yes, good job. Like Exactly. So, you know, I think the first call, she was like, okay, you start with this one and then you move on to this one. Two weeks later, I was just, you know, chomping at the bit to get back on the phone and discuss all these books with her. Such a hard job having to read all these awesome books, right? Like, oh my gosh, such a hard life. I love giving homework also. Just <laughs> That's a big part of my age. Yes. <laughs> She's a Virgo. <laughs> So as I was writing, I was, I was going, well, you know, Leah, it's Leanne Moriarty, but darker. Whereas I think the book, you know, might have turned out differently if I were aiming for Megan Abbott, but lighter <laughs> or, you know, Megan Abbott, but Paris. So, you know, I think it's, it's about just opening up genre as much as you can, as much as you need to for the story, for the story itself. A talented agent will be able to figure out exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> that sounds very lazy, but uh, uh, that was my experience at least. If you can write a book as great as this one, then yeah, then that's fair. <laughs> that's totally fair. 
I want to go back, Rachel, to when you said if this were speculative fiction, it would be different because the world building element would make it essential for me to define the genre, etc. And the reason why I want to go back to that is because on so on March 17th, we had the first meeting of our book club. And the book club starts with the most boring part, which is me talking for two hours, webinar style. So you don't get to see anyone. You just get to see me in slides. And I essentially like dissected your book. And I was like, this is why it's so brilliant. This is why it works so well. This is why you couldn't stop reading. And then we had like a cozy book club discussion where, by the way, the first question was, Cece, what genre is this? <laughs> and I and I mean, I said, listen, I haven't spoken to them yet, but like I see this as book club fiction with thriller elements. That's that's what I went with. I have no idea whether I got that right or not. But this is all to say that there was a specific slide on world building, because I don't know that you, if you noticed this or not. And I will like this is a hill I will die on and I will convince you no matter how long it takes. You had to do world building for this book. You created a world of a world that exists. This is true, but you still had to build it for the reader. It's set in a very specific stage, which is the world of ballet. I mean, I know Sarah was obviously a dancer because, you know, you mentioned that Sarah to us, but like most people did not dance at this level even when they were dancers. So to understand the stakes, the competitive nature, you had to do so much work, so much world building. And you did an amazing job. And one of the things you did was you started out so many chapters with this sort of light second person. One of the chapters is actually used as, as like a little blurb on the back. Like you start out as perfect and then you become something else. It's actually from the prologue. But then there's also like ballerinas or like point shoes. You have to break them before they're of any use. I'm paraphrasing now. But my question is, I have two questions specifically. One, prologue. When did you add the prologue? Was it always there? Was it added later? Was it with Sarah, your agent, or Sarah, your editor? Because everyone in North America is called Sarah. This is my theory. Um, Sarah and Lauren. Um, or And also my second question is, what about the sort of like light second person that you sometimes use throughout the novel? Like, When was that added? These are all my very specific nerdy questions. Oh, I love them. I'm so excited. Um, I love speculative fiction just to go way back for a minute. I love speculative fiction. I read a lot of it. I think in terms of the world building, more world building, that was the wrong phrasing. I think I should have said it's a different kind of world building that particularly where there's magic or something like that involved, you need to set up the rules in a way that we know how gravity works in the ballerinas. It's, it's pretty much assumed. So it's, it's just a different set of, I think, expectations that the reader brings to the book. In terms of the world here, I think one thing that was really tricky for me writing this is that their world is so small. And the fact is that it become, it can become very claustrophobic, I think, when you're actually in a company or a, on a sports team or anywhere that from the outside is fascinating because it's so elite and so selective. But at the same time, within it, yeah, there are these, it's very restrictive. But you need to build that world for the reader to understand the stakes because the stakes at the beginning, at least, are artistic. Again, no spoilers, but the premise is that Delphine comes back to choreograph this ballet. So before things kind of deepen and she's thrown back into these old relationships and old friendships, that's kind of the primary driver of the action, her primary motivation at the beginning. And I was really lucky in this in that my parents are both writers, both college professors teaching writing. And my father is my absolute, you know, number one all-time beta reader. 
And he also has very little interest in ballet other than in terms of supporting me when I danced. And so getting him interested in this book was really my ultimate goal. Somebody who is not at all interested in ballet, you know, so if I could get him to think about it the way he thinks about a football novel or something like that with a world that does interest him. Beyond that, he's a wonderful reader, so he can put some of that aside. But he was just saying, you know, this world is so insular and it's hard to care at the beginning. Now, my father, who's a man in his 70s, was not my target audience for this book, but he is an incredible writer and an incredible reader. So I knew that, you know, I had to work on showing why why these goals were important. And to do that, I had to build out the world a little bit more. I think the pro- the prologue's been there for some time. I think it was there in the first draft that I sent to Sarah, was it, Sarah? So I would like to talk about the prologue, if that's okay, because I think this is really <laughs> interesting for the reader. So the prologue was there, which I loved, because it really sort of demystifies like the American obsession with Paris and the way we romanticize it as a place. But what's very interesting for readers to know is that it's Sarah Canton who actually added this one line to the prologue that I think sort of shifts the whole thing where she put in this line that says, before I killed someone or before I killed anyone. And that was not in the original prologue, right, Rachel? That's possible. I do feel that this was something that was added later to further the suspense, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm misremembering, but I know the prologue was always there. Interesting. I got a very specific question in our book club, which was, did she add the prologue at the end? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'll ask her. (laughs) No, that, that was something that I did add in later drafts before I sent it out. The beginning of the novel wasn't working without it because, you know, I wanted to say this is a dance novel that's not just about dance. There were a lot of other things I wanted to say, but those are all in the prologue. The, the original beginning. So you're absolutely right, Sarah. We were both right. Let's put it that way, because the original first few clauses were before Sandrine, which was Natalie's early name until we decided it sounded too much like Delphine. Before Sandrine emailed and offered to take me back, before anybody died. That had come out of a conversation that I had with Jessica Pan, my co-author on Graduates in Wonderland, and the author of Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come. She's a wonderful writer and essayist. You know, and I said, I'm just having a really hard time, you know, setting the stakes at the beginning and building this world and showing what the narrator's risking throughout the story. And she suggested doing something, putting in some kind of significant foreshadowing thinking about when Delphine was telling the story, you know, what that moment was like. And Sarah Fair is absolutely right in that Sarah Canton did suggest revising that before anybody died, which is much more passive to before I killed anyone, which I think we can all agree is much better, more powerful. So I spent 30 minutes talking about it. This is not a joke. <laughs> like in fairness, I do ramble and getting me to shut up is really hard as evidenced by the number of times that I've had to mute myself in this talk. But I was like, okay, let's unpack the major dramatic question, which must be established at the end of every first chapter in your case, a prologue. And so I was like, here's the plot driven question. Here's the character driven question. And one of the things that I kept asking people to think about as we, you know, as the slides went on and as we talked about the book was, who do you think she killed? Because we have so many theories and a huge part of being a storyteller is manipulating, right? And making people think it's one person. Oh no, now I think it's someone else. Oh my gosh, now I think it's this human. And obviously no one expected it to be who she actually killed because that was very well done. But it's interesting because 
when we had the cozy book club discussion, you know, where everyone was on camera and everyone was talking and it was so much fun. Half of the people were like, oh my God, I was dying to know who she killed. And half of the people were like, it's not that I didn't read the prologue because I did, but I kind of forgot that she killed someone. I was reading to be, you know, for the relationships. I was reading because I was so invested in their friendship. And a lot of people were like, yeah, one of the things that I was super curious about specifically was what had happened to Lindsay. Because from the very beginning of the book, this is not a spoiler, Delphine is feeling guilty. She feels like she owes Lindsay something because Delphine feels like she ruined Lindsay's life. And so we spend a lot of time wondering what exactly did she do to make her feel that way? And so it's just so interesting because it's such a great note that you got. And I think it's a wonderful addition, but it just goes back to our earlier point of some people are going to read this for the, who did she kill? Like you obviously read it for more than one reason, but at the forefront of our minds, sometimes it's, it's a very specific plot question. And sometimes it's a very specific character question. And it's not, there's more than one ways to read, right? Absolutely. And I think that goes back to, to, the question about genre, because that is, you know, I was a little bit flippant earlier, but I think that is important for readers when they're choosing what book to read next. And some readers really had a hard time with this, as Sarah was pointing out, you know, with the idea that is this a thriller or, is, or isn't this? And others just really, that that's not a question that bothers them at all. So it's it, people come to the well for different reasons and everybody is very, very welcome. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Rachel and Sarah, can you please tell me about the upcoming novel that Rachel has coming out in December, The Ingenue? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. The Ingenue is a novel about a woman in her 30s who goes back home for her mother's funeral. Uh, she hasn't been home in a while, expecting to inherit the family estate, which is the elf house uh, in Milwaukee. And she finds that her mother's left kind of a strange will that actually leaves the elf house to a mysterious family acquaintance. So in trying to figure out why her mother did this and in trying to change, you know, the uh, outcome of the will, Saskia kind of has to go back and dive into her own past to tie up some unresolved loose ends. So I'm really excited about it. It's a book that I wrote while I was in Paris during the first lockdown here and just dreaming about going home to Milwaukee. So I was thinking a lot about that city where I grew up and where my family was. And yeah, as, as always, it came out you know so much darker than I intended when I sat down. Um, but I guess that's just my thing. And I'll add it, it has these really beautiful sort of like gothic fairy tale elements. Like I love a story that is slightly claustrophobic where there are lots of characters in a tight circumstance or on stage together. And I think Rachel does that really beautiful. You know, you're in this big house in the winter and it's a little dark, a little gloomy, a little icy, but it's it really creates this atmospheric tension that really pushes the plot. And it's just like the ballerinas has really beautiful writing on page and still deals with a lot of the themes I think Rachel's really interested in. I always say that I love her writing. Like there's this amazing ability to just put a little rage in there, which I think is so hard to do for writers. And, and it, so it kind of has that simmering tension the same way that the ballerinas does. Listeners, Sarah Fair said tension twice. So you have to take two sips of your coffee. We talk a lot about the importance of tension here. And so whenever I say specificity and tension, everyone has to drink their coffee. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so for our last question, I would like each of you to please recommend us a book. It can be a book that you are excited to read, but you haven't read yet. It can be a book that you've devoured and you can't wait to talk about it because you think it's so amazing. A huge part of what we do here is recommend amazing authors to our listeners. So please go ahead and do that. 
no pressure. <laughs> I'm literally opening my Kindle right now. I'm really bad at remembering uh, the names of things. Well, this is a book that probably doesn't need my boost, but I just loved it so much. I think I bought this for four different people as a present. Um, it is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia, which is absolutely everything that I love in writing. And this is somebody, this is an author who has written very different uh, novels across genres. And yet, you know, the, despite the very different topics and subject matters and time periods, she is just so talented that I immediately went out and bought her entire back catalog. It's something I don't think I've done since Megan Abbott, since discovering Megan, Megan Abbott, as we discussed earlier. It is so twisty and dark and feminist and wonderful. There is just, I don't, I, I don't even want to give too much away, but it's set in Mexico in the 1950s. And it, the writing is so unbelievably beautiful. Well, also just, you cannot put it down. I'm a huge Mexican Gothic fan. So yes, yes to all that. Sarah, what about you? We want your recommendation. I would recommend, I think my favorite book that I've read in 2022 so far is Happy Hour by Marla Granados. And I think it has a very interesting, it's a very agent take. I love the sort of publishing history of it. I know, I think she won, if I'm, people can fact check me. I believe she won a contest that Verso did. So it was published by a smaller publisher. And I think it's a book she tried to get published for like, or, you know, her agent tried to sell on and off for I think six or seven years. And I love those sort of publishing success stories. And from a reader's standpoint, it's about a woman who's 21 who kind of moves to New York and just basically tries to sort of grift her way through a summer here, making money where she can, like doing lots of partying and having fun. And, but you know, it's a, it has that sort of darker undertone a little bit too, just about what it's like to be a young woman living in New York, trying to find your place here in this like big, crazy city. And obviously, of course, I personally resonated with it. I probably am the same age as the author and had a similar experience moving to New York, but it's just a really beautiful character study. And I love when you get to go with one character for like a, a short amount of time and really learn about their life through this specific lens. And it's a lot about the relationship she has with her friend who ends up being her roommate and they spend the summer together. And I love those like really, it's just a really deep friendship story ultimately. And it's just about a woman trying to find herself, but there's still a lot of plot, which I really like. So you're still having a lot of fun. I highly recommend. Well, now I'm going to go out and buy this book because that sounds right up my alley. Yay. Okay. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. Where did the time go? I wish we could talk for another hour. And yeah, and thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thank, thank you. you. So much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. 
And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th 
also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.